So you've decided to give up that old behavior that's been killing you and all you care for and surrender to a power greater than yourself. That's the first step. Surrender is what opens the prison door. Now it's time to walk through that door and into a whole new way of life. Spirituality, self-care, service, social connection, and the simple daily disciplines that pave the way to lasting freedom. This is Positive Sobriety. Welcome to another episode of the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Oh, and uh, we are soldiering on even amid the crisis, the pandemic now sweeping across the country. Uh, We've had to modify our strategy a little bit. We're not in the same building, David and I. Right. Uh, Rex is not here. We are, however, using some new technology. So uh, here we are, this episode brought to you via Zencaster. Right. Uh, Yeah. Thanks, Jeff Vandriel, for turning us on to this podcasting software. We'll see uh, how our audio quality improves. Well, brother, uh, how has your therapy, counseling, coaching practice changed with the rules that are now in force under uh, COVID restrictions? Well, you know, Nate, it's been a really interesting time, of course, like um, uh, like everybody. I'm not unique to any of that, but the way our group has um, decided at first to handle this was that we were not going to open the waiting room. Every uh, practitioner in our, in our suite would be responsible for uh, texting their client to come up from their car and not stay in the waiting room. We would let them in. Well, we have a rear entrance. Um, uh-huh. And um, and we would let them in the rear entrance and then have the session and they could go. And then as we realized this was getting more serious uh, and we were all being encouraged to do more distancing, uh, we have uh, resorted to Zoom and uh, FaceTime, some of that. One of the things the government's done that's made it easier for us is they've lifted the HIPAA restrictions on virtual uh, behavioral health therapies. So I so, can. Yeah, so it used to be, I mean, uh, that you could not do therapy uh, unless you were in the same shared physical space, right? Right. And HIPAA compliant. Uh, um, uh, program. Oh, was that for privacy too? Maybe so right. nobody could eavesdrop on what was going on. Right, so they had to be secure programs. Right, and so now they've kind of, kind of like what they've done with doctors that say, you know, we were lifting some of these restrictions on who can practice oh, where. Yeah, yeah, all so of that. Yeah. So yeah, we're just basically saying, you know, see your clients, uh, use good common sense, and so I've been doing FaceTime. Uh, sessions this week from home. And I've had a few people that have had to pull out for uh, financial reasons right now. And uh, we're all Mm -hmm. starting to kind of wonder where that may go. But uh, it's just, it's an unprecedented time for everybody and doing this thing. And 
Uh, I'm hoping that my people will be able to continue to press in and get the help that they need. And I'm doing it uh, mostly from my apartment. (laughs) So it's a little different, you know, uh, for sure. Well, I can tell you this whole thing has really disrupted my own social routines. I'm used to being out of the house uh, for a good percentage of the day. Um, I, you know, for me, uh, personal interaction connection is absolutely essential. Right. Especially as a a porn and sex addict. Right. So, um, you know, what, what porn offers is false connection. Mm-hmm. And if I am forced into isolation and I've got this deep need for connection and I'm spending a ton of time online, then I am always just a click away from uh, a very, what has been in my story, a very destructive uh, drug and the doorway to, you know, a lot of heartache. Yeah. So um, I am extremely grateful for FaceTime and Zoom and the fact that Samson Society, which is the fellowship that uh, is, you know, the brothers that I run with, all my running buddies are in the Samson Society. Yeah. I'm so grateful that we started virtual meetings a couple of years ago. Those are already up and running. And so I can connect with my friends without leaving the house. And, you know, as the upside, you know, my wife, you know, Allie, a great day. Her best day is the day that she wakes up and knows that she doesn't have to go anywhere or see anybody. <laughs> you know, she's yeah, just, yeah. that's how she is. So she's loving this whole thing. This is great. Uh, her, and her, you know, her one complaint, which she doesn't voice very often is that, you know, I'm awfully busy and she doesn't see me as much as she would like. So now it's the best of all worlds for Allie. Uh, even when I'm uh, gone, I'm here. And so I'm getting more quality time with her. I'm not getting as many walks in with guys as I'm used to. I'm used to going for a long walk with at least one guy, maybe two, maybe three during the course of a typical day. Right. And uh, I'm still able to meet, uh, you know, a few guys and walk outside, but I'm also getting in a nice daily walk with Allie, which is great. Yeah. And we're getting more time together. Uh, Almost feels, you know, a little bit like a staycation. Uh, Yeah. Uh, my regret, you know, the greatest sadness right now is that the grandkids who we love so much can't come over. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but we can at least see them on screen as well. Yeah. 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 It, uh, hopefully at some point sooner than later, we will be able to be with the people we love face to face again. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I tell you, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to sound naive, but I don't fear the virus as much as I do the panic. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 And, uh, I have felt myself drawn toward that precipice sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Especially when I spend too much time obsessing over the news, uh, when I'm following things too closely or when I get sucked into the swirling vortex of social media for too long. Right. Um, you know, there is kind of this deeply rooted, uh, self-preservation instinct that takes over and I can feel, I can hear, uh, the whisper of panic. I did give in not to panic. Ah, I didn't stock up on a year's supply of toilet paper. In fact, I didn't buy toilet paper. We have enough Mm -hmm. to last us, I think until 
um, you know, uh, the supply chain catches up with current demand. But I did make a trip to Costco early on Sunday morning. And the reason I did, frankly, is that my wife, who is, uh, as our regular listeners probably know by now, she's a decade older than I am. So Allie is 74 with a history of heart disease and respiratory problems, and she's a cancer survivor. So, yeah, um, you know, a lot of factors that put her right smack dab in the middle of the most vulnerable uh, part, segment of our population. Yeah. Um, naive or not, I am not all that concerned about myself mentally. I still, you know, I still like to think of myself as in my early twenties. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm invulnerable. But I don't want to bring it home to her. That's my biggest scare. So knowing that uh, I'd have, we would have to, you know, self-isolate. I did go to Costco and, you know, buy enough, you know, durable goods, filled the chest freezer basically and some canned goods so that, you know, I I don't really have to go to the store for another month if, you know, if, if worse come to yeah. worse. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I also am so grateful to have been given some other tools for managing my anxiety and some other ways to connect with people in ways that bring that anxiety down right. and uh, can take away the, 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 the pull, that powerful pull mm-hmm. toward another kind of coping strategy that I used for a very long time that uh, in my experience only made things worse. Right. And our guest today has some really practical ways to approach fear based on his own story that had nothing to do with this current pandemic, uh, but just ways that he was able to approach his own fears and how that can be applied to this situation we're all facing today. What a great conversation, listeners. You are in for a treat. Stay with us. We'll be right back on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. And welcome back to the Positive Sobriety Podcast. David, uh, once again, you have tapped your extensive network of contacts in the recovery community and brought us another stellar guest, haven't you? I believe I have. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I do Uh, believe I have. Introduce us, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. Our guest today is Patrick Custer. And Patrick is the um, National Director of Alumni at Promises Behavioral Health. And I'll let him tell us more about Promises, but it's a uh, multi, they have multiple treatment sites around the country. They have uh, a very um, kind of a a multi-pronged approach to recovery, which I love. They deal with uh, mental health as well as trauma, as well as addiction. And I'll let him explain that more. But Patrick has his own recovery story that I want him to share with us as well. He's got about a decade of experience in behavioral health. He's worked with a number of the uh, kind of flagship treatment centers here in the Middle Tennessee area. Um, He's got a history with the YMCA and he's done fundraising for uh, a lot of special uh, needs uh, kids and events here in town. And, and uh, he's just uh, somebody that I've wanted to get to know better. And so I thought since we're all kind of 
living in uh, imposed exile right now. I won't. It'll be a while before Patrick and I can go to coffee maybe somewhere. But I thought at least we could get him on the podcast, let him share some of his stories. So, Patrick, welcome uh, to the Positive Sobriety Podcast. And thank you for making time to be with us. Well, thank you. It's it's um, it's really an honor to be here. And um, I'm just so excited to talk to you guys and um, do a little bit something different today. Um, yeah, and, yeah. And positive, something different and positive. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and as I'm sure all of our listeners are aware, we are all um, trying to observe uh, social distancing in a safe and responsible way. And uh, so in that, we are all coming from our own little respective uh, parts of uh, town. Patrick, you do live in the greater Nashville area. So that's, um, yep. is that, that's right, right? Yep. And, I live in West Nashville and commute over here to Brentwood for, uh, for work. So I'm kind of all over yeah. the place most every day. Your office is just actually down the street from mine. My building is on Maryland way. And, um, I think you're oh, just yeah. down the street. So meanwhile, world. this conversation is being routed through Pakistan. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, the marvels of modern technology. Uh, Patrick, cool, yeah. it's, it's so good to have you with us. I'll tell you how we always like to begin. We like our listeners to get to know our guests' personal story. Uh, so how did you wind up in the field of treatment and recovery? I'm, I, I, I am uh, supposing that uh, it was more than mere chance. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, it's funny. I'll say you mentioned that I've been in the field for about 10 years and I've been uh, in, in personal recovery uh, for just about that long. Like many of us, um, you know, right after I got sober, I thought, well, you know, I might as well uh, get to work and see what I can do in this field. You know, I started volunteering and then doing different things um, and then I got jobs uh, and kept going and here I am. So, Um, I will say early on, I feel like if I were to, you know, to go back and, and, you know, to my earliest knowledge of, of where things began down this path for me would be in my genetics. Um, it's straight down my dad's bloodline. We have a a strong, strong, uh, bond of alcoholism, um, through almost all the family members, uh, you know, whether it's trace uh, characteristics or full blown, full blown addiction, um, it's pretty, it's seen pretty strongly throughout, um, each generation, uh, down his lineage. And, um, so my earliest memory, I've got, I'm the youngest of four kids and, uh, I'm, I'm 33 years old and I've got, uh, an older sister who's four years older than me and, um, two brothers that are the oldest one's 17 years older and the other one's 19 years older than me. So, wow. Yep. Um, my oldest brother is uh, the other <laughs> recovering uh, sibling of mine. And uh, my earliest memories of of him were, you know, he didn't live at our house growing up because he was so much older and also in full-blown addiction my entire childhood. And so, oh, wow. um, yeah, my, my, my first and foremost interaction with alcohol was alcoholism itself. And um, so, I was raised in a, a very, um, I would say, charismatic, conservative, Pentecostal family. Um, oh, wow. and, oh, good. <laughs> yeah. Me too. All right. Yeah. Terrific. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. Here we go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so we, um, you know, you saw a lot of 70s 
similar characteristics to probably a lot of other people who were raised in, in that type of family. And one of those being, um, you know, I was, I was raised in a dry household and, and my parents had made that decision for a number of reasons. Um, but by the time I came along, uh, you know, my dad's father had died um, of alcoholism is alcohol just absolutely killed him. Um, I think, you know, he internally bled out, uh, or something like that. So, you know, real tragic and, um, you know, but even my father, that wasn't enough to keep him from drinking and he never developed full blown alcoholic tendencies. Um, but, well, I should say full blown alcohol addiction, but he developed tendencies. And when, um, things started to happen with my oldest brother and, um, it scared my dad real bad. And so he decided uh, not to drink. So by the time I came along, dry household, and uh, my brother's in and out of, of hospitals, every time I remember ever seeing him, we lived here in, in Nashville, and he, he lived in Dallas, Texas. And whenever we would see him, he was he was pretty much um, sauced, you know, in yeah. bed and, and just incoherent. Um, and uh, so, you know, I just, I remember... Uh, my earliest interaction with alcohol being, you know, how we dealt with alcoholism, you know, it was dealing with my brother, it was my parents trying to make sure my sister and I didn't answer the phone if he was calling because we, they didn't want, you know, they, they understood drama and they didn't want us um, uh, get, we, we, we didn't understand what was going on and they didn't want us, uh, you know, getting in the middle of something we wouldn't understand that would affect us neg- negatively in the long run. And, right. You know, as, as I'm sure you guys know, I don't know if you have kids or not, but you know, there's only so much as a parent you can do to protect your child when there's you know, something uncontrollable going on. As, right. Um, as much as they, <laughs> they tried to exert their ability to control the situation, as we know, addiction is its own beast and it's, you know, you can't, in Al-Anon terms, you you didn't cause it, you can't control it, and uh, I right. forget the other C, but you yeah. Know. So um, you're mm-hmm. you're telling me that a quarantine policy doesn't work when it comes to addiction, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> so um, so you know, fast forward a little bit. I grew up in a conservative household. I was homeschooled my whole life, so oh, a little wow. different on that on that end. Um, and uh, I was a pretty good kid. I was very focused on doing everything right and not getting in trouble. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I stayed very active. I'm, I'm probably on the most extroverted side of being an extrovert. Uh, so even though I was homeschooled, I found ways to get involved as a young person, got very involved with youth leadership and volunteering at the YMCA in Middle Tennessee. And, um, you know, I... I would say that I did and participated in everything that you would want a good kid to do. And um, I think I think that my adolescence and childhood is a good example for people who think that everything is related um, to how somebody's brought up. Because my parents did everything, in my opinion, right, that you would want parents to do, the environment that you would want to set up for your child um, to prevent addiction or alcoholism to happen. Right. Um, but when I graduated high school and went to college, um, you know, it wasn't long before I, at whatever point, uh, decided to try uh, drinking. And, you know, I had that aha moment that everybody had. Mine was a little different, though, because I had believed for such a long time uh, the message that either, you know, this was the message that I was, mm, that I inferred 
um, or absorbed at some point. I don't know that it was verbatim said this way to me, but um, that alcohol was bad, absolutely. And that alcohol and drugs, I guess, put that in a category together. Um, and that if you did them, used them or what have you, um, you were almost guaranteed to become an addict and also right. go crazy and lose your mind. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, when you put anything in absolute category, it can be dangerous because, um, especially for somebody developing their worldview, and I had been so sheltered for so long. Um, so, so when I decided to, for whatever reason, try drinking on a small scale in college, all of a sudden, you know, realizing, hey, I feel a little bit better and I'm not going crazy and I don't want eight more drinks right now. It was just a pleasant feeling. Right. Um, and so the message I immediately got at that moment was my parents lied to me and um, I wonder what else they lied to me about with the worldview, mm. um, you know, that I currently operate with. And right. so that that started for me a long scale of somewhat rebellion and testing my limits in anything that I'd ever been told or believed, including my spirituality, religion, um, and social norms, you know. Right. Um, right. So <clears throat> fast forward a little bit, you know, I did all kinds of dumb stuff drinking um, and, you know, started using other types of substances and what have you. And um and started, you know, wrecking my life like we do, uh, mm -hmm. and you know, rotating different colleges, um, you know, doing well in some classes, failing out of others, uh, really having a difficult time of finding my way and sticking with something. Because as addiction does, even though I would put my best foot forward and do well. Um, you know, the addiction would always catch up with me and screw things up. And I'd have to end whatever I was doing to start something different. And um, so, you know, th that was a repeated theme for me until uh, things got real bad in, um, let's see, it was 2000, the end of 2010. And um, I, I was just at, at the, the depths of despair. I'd moved back in with my parents and thought that they didn't know I was uh, drinking 24-7. Um, I couldn't sleep. I could not sleep more than two hours at a time uh, because my body would start withdrawing. No matter how much alcohol I had, uh, I would start withdrawing, and I'd have to wake up just so that um, you know I wouldn't go into full blown uh, panic and physical distress. Right. And um, so you know I was in a real bad way, and uh, you know hiding bottles. I wasn't throwing them away. I don't things I couldn't really explain then, and and you know now look back and just think it was weird, addictive you know, disorderly behavior, but, you know, I was, I was drinking liquor constantly and, and hoarding bottles and hiding them around their house. Um, cause I never wanted the evidence to be, uh, shown right. or found out. And, you know, I felt like if I threw it away, somebody would see it in the trash. So it's better <laughs> to just hide it. Um, yeah. You know? Yeah. So, um, you know, of course my family knew they knew something was up. Um, I had at that time I had been in nursing school and um, and I had failed out because of uh, I showed up late too many times. And mm. it was so devastating to me because it was my you know, going into nursing school was my last last gasp at um, being an effective, you know, finding meaning in my life mm -hmm. um, and and bringing meaning to the world and, and what have you. And 
um, I was so devastated when I got dropped out of that program. I couldn't, I honestly couldn't face it and admit it to myself. And I certainly couldn't with my family. And when we think about, you know, that saying of addicted, you know, people suffering an addiction about, um, you know, I'll do it tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. The biggest thing for me was during this period, that's where that, that mm, process manifested itself the most was um, I knew that I was living the biggest lie of all. And I could not, I would wake up each day thinking, I've got to get honest about this. And I couldn't, it was, it was too overwhelming and traumatizing to me because I felt like I had lost all value and meaning and didn't know what I was going to do. This was also the point at which I would say I wasn't actively suicidal, but I'd been closer to losing my will to live than I ever was in my entire life. Mm. Um, I, you know, I wasn't going looking for ways to kill myself um, directly, but I was drinking at a rate knowing that it, and, and using drugs, knowing that e- each day I was having results that that could take my life, but I didn't care. Right. Um, I started to have neuropathy and loose feeling from my elbows down to my hands and uh, in my feet. I was experiencing nerve damage. Um, it was re- it was ravaging my body. And mind you, this was right when I had turned 24 years old. So, wow. I mean, really young to be experiencing these, uh, this strong uh, of effects from, uh, from addiction with alcohol. And when right. I say other drugs, my, my secondary drug of choice was Adderall. And I, would, I, I was on quite a high amount of that every day that I had manipulated my psychiatrist into di- uh, prescribing for me. So, um, Fast forward, I'll say, you know, this is, that's what it, what happened and uh, what it was like was, well, what I just explained. And uh, yeah. so February of 2011, my, I'm living with my parents. Things obviously aren't good. My parents are older. And so I can't remember how old they were at the time. Right now they're 75 and 76. And um, my dad had an episode. Both my parents were home. My dad had an episode and we knew something wasn't right with his heart. Turns out he had a a giant pulmonary embolism and um, we got him to the hospital. Now, mind you, I, you know, I'm living in this disillusioned world. I decided to stay home and told the family members that I was going to man the phone calls for anybody who was concerned calling the house wondering about dad. In reality, I knew I couldn't be close to any of the other family because at this point they were making comments to me if they would, you know, get close to me about how yeah. it smelled like a brewery. You know, my, yeah. my excuse would always be, well, you know, I had, I had some drinks last night. I don't know why I still smell like alcohol, you know, but I yeah. knew it was, I, I had to, I was already practicing social distancing at that point, but it was, <laughs> it was, it was not yeah. for a good reason. It was my addiction kicking in for, in survival mode. And so um, here my dad is, he had to have open heart surgery. Uh, and, you know, they went in and had to remove this, this giant blood clot. Um, and uh, I, I didn't, I didn't go to the hospital once and it wasn't for lack of love for my father. It was because nothing else mattered to me at that time, as much as maintaining my ability to feel okay. And that I felt I knew was going to be taken from me or was going to be threatened if I went and was around every single one of my family members at the hospital. Right. Um, 
So, I, you know, even now when I tell this story or when I think about that time, it's, it's, it's very hard for me to process because I, I have such a strong and loving relationship with my parents that the thought that I was not there in a situation that could have been easily been the very last time I saw my father, you know, is, uh, it's heartbreaking. Now, fast forward, dad's still alive. He made it through. It was miraculous. And, uh, you know, obviously we're in, we're in a great place now and everything. So, um, but you know, that was, that it's a huge blessing that, that, um, everything happened the way it did. And, and I say for me, you know, my higher power, I call God and I feel like God was working on my behalf at this point, because, you know, this was a tragic situation that ended up being used to save not only my father's life, but my life as well. A couple of days in, my siblings come and basically uh, corner me at my parents' house and have a quasi-intervention. And, you know, they give me an ultimatum and say, hey, mom and dad, mom has said, you know, this time my dad, I don't even know if he's, he's conscious, you know, but my they said, you know, mom is, uh, she's done. You're not, you're not going to stay here and you don't have any money. So, you know, your option right now is to go to this treatment center. Yeah. And, you know, we know what's been going on. We know that you've been dropped. You, you were dropped out of your school program. You know, the, the, the jig is up. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I don't, remember arguing they might say otherwise but from from my recollection it was a pretty quick slip into the car packing my bag got into the car went to treatment wow and um you know today i i i'm happy to say that i was a you know a one-time to treatment person um mm. and have been able to maintain sobriety since then i'm so grateful that that's the case because i don't believe that if i had been a revolving door uh, you know, somebody that, that took multiple treatments or was in, yeah. you know, didn't have the opportunity to go to treatment and was trying to only get sober in AA and, you know, did the whole, you know, meeting relapse, meeting relapse. I, I do not believe there's a shred of, of, uh, belief in me that I would have lived through that process. So, um, wow. yep. I believe it was, it was a miracle. And, um, you know, everything from there I did, I did residential 30 days and another, uh, I don't know, I think it was four months of, uh, follow-up extended care, which was also residential. Uh-huh. Um, from there I did a sober, sober living. And, um, like I said, started volunteering. And then the next thing you know, uh, was working in treatment facilities out in Dixon and, uh, have yeah. just stuck with it, stuck with it ever since. So, I, um, it, you know, I say all the time that I and those of us who are in recovery that work in this field, you know, not everybody's cut out for it, but the people that are, that, that are doing what we do are so lucky and so blessed because we get to wake up and even on our bad days, we are encouraged and our motives are reinforced knowing that no matter what we're doing, as long as we put one foot forward, uh, going into work, one foot forward after the other doing the next right thing to keep the momentum going and changing people's lives. We put our heads on the pillow at night, knowing that there is an unknowable number of lives that we've potentially helped save and touch. Um, And, you know, so much of the workforce can't say that. Yeah. Uh, Not meaning that their, their jobs or anything aren't important, but I guess I'm just to, 
trying to express my gratitude that, um, you know, not only in my recovery program that I work, uh, you know, my personal life with other, other people uh, suffering with addiction, but, you know, in my work life, um, I get to, you know, stay inspired every day. And, and right. it's a true blessing. Yeah. It's, it's like working with clients that remind you why you are, sober why you want to stay sober and why you don't want to go back or at least i experienced that a lot um why i don't want to go back to where i was because um i'm reminded every day of the uh aftermath or uh whatever of my own my own behavior and choices and and when i no longer had choices yeah but uh um well so uh, patrick that kind of takes us up to uh, i know you've worked for various treatment uh, centers and various programs. What, um, tell me about what the director of alumni uh, role is with Promises and how you, uh, how you work within their program. Sure. Um, well, and you know what, I'll, I'll step back just a little bit because there's part of my story I didn't tell you. And it also involves coming, you know, coming on to Promises. So okay. one of my, one of my, um, I would say my worst fear uh, before this happened was that, uh, you know, I always struggle with a fear of death ever since, I mean, one of my earliest memories uh-huh. and no matter, you know, how much prayer, whatever I did, it, you know, sometimes would help, but the fear would always come back. I mean, just hauntingly. And, um, the, the my worst fear that was that I was going to get a brain tumor and die specifically. Uh. So 2016 wow. rolls along and, um, I've been suffering with some weird symptoms, um, that we couldn't figure out. I'd had numerous tests and everything and, um, in and out of the ER. And, um, I was like breaking down, breaking down. And finally, uh, they did an MRI on my head and found out that I had a brain tumor and oh, my, wow. the floor of my cerebellum was affecting my, my motor functions, um, heart rate, breathing, lots of things that are essential to being alive. And, um, and it was, it was pretty, uh, the, the order of events that happened was pretty severe. They found it in that week. I was that next day I was admitted to the hospital and that week had went into brain surgery, uh, for the tumor removal. And at the time when they told me, uh, they had thought that it was a cancerous tumor. Um, a type of cancer that is very aggressive, originates in the spine, spreads to the brain and throughout the body very quickly. Uh-huh. Um, and so when they gave me the news, they kind of remo- removed hope for me that um, it was, you know, one of the tons of brain tumors people have that are benign and easily removable. And you go about living the rest of your life happy and, you know, die of something else. Um, so you know, I lived a week of actually longer than that because we didn't get the results for a few weeks after. Um, fortunately, found out it wasn't cancerous and they were able to get all but like, I don't know, two hundredths of uh, a percent of the tumor removed. Um, but uh, just to kind of put this all in a nutshell, it wasn't cancer, but I had almost anything that could have gone wrong, go wrong. I ended up getting... Uh, MRSA, which for those of you who don't know, right. is oh, methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus. So it's the worst type of staph that I'm aware of you can get because it's yeah. resistant to all of the, the penicillin in that family um, of antibiotics. 
so not only that, but it was in my head and uh, three times, or let's see, I got it one, two, three times. It, it, it got, I got reinfected and um, almost passed into the blood brain barrier. I mean, we're talking, they caught it each time they caught it. It was just in time. And once, from what I understand, MRSA passes the black uh, blood brain barrier, you know, outside of a miracle, you're done. And um, so I, I ended up because of this, this reinfection that kept happening, I had to go back into the hospital. I was, um, uh, you know, each time it was just devastating and more difficult to recover and had more things go wrong. Finally, the last time I went in for the final brain surgery in the end of 2016, they ended up having to keep me in the, the ICU for like 45 days. I developed I, both kinds of pneumonia and I got the exact same type of blood clot in my lung uh, that my dad had had when I first got there. Oh. Uh, come to find out, we both share blood mutation where we clot easier, yada, yada, yada. So <clears throat> lots of things going wrong. But the main theme through this is that I went through my worst nightmare. And honestly, it was probably potentially worse than I could have ever imagined. Um, and, and was able to maintain my sobriety through that. Um, I would say that, you know, I didn't know what I was going to, how I was going to handle it, what I was going to do from one minute to the next, but I held on to my relationship with my sponsor and those around me and my faith, my spirituality. And, um, I made it through. And because of that, uh, you know, I was just talking to my dad last night. He said, Patrick, you know, the person that you were before you went through this would be freaking out right now, uh, about what all is going on in the world. And he's right. Um, I did not handle chaos, fear, stress um, well at all. I had very little coping coping skills. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the things that I walked away from with that whole experience with my brain tumor and all those surgeries was I came so close to death so many times um, that I had to face it. And... Oh, I had so many conversations with God and I felt more alone than I ever felt at any other time in my life, but came away with the ability and perspective to live my life in such a way that, uh, you know, this, this stuff that, that comes, comes at us to detract from our serenity, um, our sense of well-being, um, steal our joy, our happiness, um, for me is it's, it's not, I can't say it's not an issue, but it's a completely different, it's a completely different um, approach to life. And I think I, I'm forever changed because, because of it. Absolutely. And, um, you yes. know, so, so I look and I think, you know, what, that's something that I truly believe I was only able to gain because of going through a life-threatening experience. And I can tell you that anybody else who has, I've talked to and who's listening on here that has been through something like that can probably say that they relate as well but then for the rest of the world you know we've got a lot of people freaking out right now and i would say that you know we could you know really use um people could really use some help with coping strategies and, and what have you and so yeah um i just think that doing these podcasts and anything we can do online right now to encourage and remind people um to stay positive and self-regulate and mm -hmm. um you know, and take inventory on our emotions and, and, and yeah. what have you. Um, 
as much as we can do, we need to be doing, especially those of us who are doing better than others right now. So that's yeah. one of the biggest reasons why I'm so glad that you guys were doing this podcast today. Um, Cause I, I hope that it's able to uplift, you know, other people and what have you and, and, and yeah. make a difference. So well, that I is said so, that, I will. Hmm? Yeah. That is so good, Patrick. Cause I've been telling people don't think with your fear. Um, you know, and, and I feel like this really underscores that, you know, because you had to face your your biggest fears in that situation. And um, and you came through that and yeah. uh, came away with your sobriety. And um, I, I imagine your relationship with your fears to death are very different. Absolutely. Uh, it's hard for me to put into words, but it's, it does not run my life and it is not my primary space from which I make my decisions and behaviors anymore. Right. And that's a great place to be in. <laughs> Patrick, for those of our listeners who are not familiar with the language, I wonder if you can uh, give a couple of practical uh, tips for self-regulation in the middle of all this anxiety. What could somebody do to help self-regulate? Absolutely. Well, I think that um, something that is a great place to start is to sit in a quiet room with no distractions and a, a pen and a piece of paper and mm. really take an inventory of what you're feeling right down to you know, the physical symptoms you're feeling. Is your heart rate racing? Uh, what exactly are you worrying about? Pick that worry apart. Outline it on a piece of paper. And um, that right there gives, takes away some of the power. When you put it down and uh, it's no longer swimming in your head, you put it all on paper and say, okay, I can deal with this. You right. know, this is, right. these are just, right. these are fears. And a lot of these are just feelings. I'm going to let myself feel them and it'll pass. Yes. And that is one of the biggest things. You know, we we posted something the other day that I think is um, so powerful. And it's a statement that says, um, you cannot control the storm, um, but you can, hold on, let me look. I'm looking back at what it said. You can't control the storm, but you can control yourself. Uh, what you can do is calm yourself and the storm will pass. Mm. Um, and that's just the truth. It's so simple, but it's so true. Yeah. And I think reminding ourselves to sit and let ourselves feel, identify our feelings and acknowledge that they're there. Um, and know that it's going to pass and have faith that it will. Yeah. Um, the other thing I would say is we forget to breathe. Breathing yeah. is so important. And, and, you know, when I tell, when I talk over this with our alumni and, you know, just give some helpful tips when talking about breathing, one of the best things you can do is sit down to regulate your breathing and start just breathing in until you feel that tightness where you can't breathe anymore in your lungs and then focus on slowly blowing it out and continue to do that until you find yourself in a place of peace. And, Usually, most people are able to get to a place within five to 10 minutes of just sitting and doing that, where they feel so much better than when they started. Yeah. Other yes. thing I would say That's is cool. stop watching your news apps and stop watching the news on the television. Stop <laughs> talking about all the developments of Corona. 
because uh-huh. it's not going to do any good. Uh-huh. It's not going to do any good. I guarantee you we're all going to know if a regulation comes out, are we going to need to do something that's uh, different, you know, that we're going to find out. Nobody needs to be sitting and reading all the latest developments because it's going to make you hyperventilate. Yeah. Um, so those are the, those are those are the three things I would say. The other thing I want to mention: our our um, executive director, executive director um, or CEO rather of our company, posted uh, this email to all of us today, and I think it's just so great about um, tools to use uh, to banish fear. And it's just five simple things: um, gratitude, prayer, remember to breathe, introspection, reflection and empathy. Um, You know, looking at those five things and figuring out how we can activate those in our lives um, really, really, really will make a difference. And I just, I would encourage everybody to, uh, everybody listening to just kind of sit down and think about, uh, you know, how am I empathizing with those in a worst case scenario than me, you know, instead of looking at what my problems are and how this is affecting me at the moment. Introspection and reflection, um, you know, drawing on a time when we've been in crisis in our life before and how did we use positive coping mechanisms what were the positive things that helped us the most in those situations and some for some people they don't have positive situations where they had positive tools so i would say draw from someone else that you know you know find someone that has a positive experience and my goodness this podcast hopefully you know some of my experiences can help people um you know, reflect on, on, uh, what ways can help breathing. We talked about that prayer, self-explanatory and gratitude. My goodness, um, gratitude and fear cannot occupy the same space. Mm -hmm. Impossible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you know, Patrick, Patrick, as I listen to your story, uh, and your pattern of service that began early, you were, you were, uh, focusing on others and helping others long before you were paid to do it. Uh, and I've got to believe that that focus on service, which I imagine you was modeled for you by others, uh, may also have been planted in you as part of your growing up years. I don't know, uh, has, has really helped. I know that for me, fear is an obsessive self-concern. When I turn my focus from myself to others uh, and see what I can do to help them, there just isn't enough energy left over for me to be too afraid for myself. And uh, I I just love the fact that, uh, and it seems to me that that probably that pattern of service is responsible as much as anything else for your ability to maintain sobriety after only one trip through treatment and now, you know, 10 years in recovery. You know, I never really, I never really thought about it like that, but I, but I think you're probably right. Um, And just another thing to be grateful for, for sure. Yeah. 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 So do tell, do tell us some more about journey, about your work there and uh, you know, how folks can make contact with uh, the people that you are in relationship with. Oh sure. So we're so Promises is a company that we we um, formed last year. Uh, part of the old Elements Behavioral Health came into this company, um, and and we brought the Promises name and expanded it to cover the whole company from some 
from some of our existing treatment centers called Promises. So, so now our whole entire company that was formed is Promises Behavioral Health. And we've got 10 residential facilities across the country. Um, we treat in a residential environment, um, primary mental health issues, mood disorders, uh, personality disorders, eating disorders, sex addiction, relationship uh, relationship disorders, and uh, of course, probably the primarily the biggest thing that we treat are uh, chemical addictions, and um, and we see so many different types of people using so many different types of coping unhealthy coping mechanisms mm-hmm. uh, to to deal with pain, discomfort, um, you know the whole gamut uh, of what we are trying to numb and cover up um, so desperately by the time anyone's ever even talking about uh, the need for something like residential treatment. And uh, we, we see people come in for, uh, uh, you know, a shorter period of time. Some people come for only two weeks and others come for months. Um, yeah. And, you know, it, it depends on whether or not insurance is, is dictating how long they're willing to pay to keep somebody in treatment um, or if they have the, you know, the means to, to private pay it, it. You know, there are a lot of different factors that dictate um, somebody's ability to receive um, residential treatment and how long it is. Uh, but one thing that I would say that we believe from the top down is that, you know, help is help. And whatever window of time that we've been gifted to change someone's life, affect change in someone's life, and um, help connect them to their next uh, their next port of entry, their next um, their next step in getting healthier. We want to be of maximum usefulness uh, to those people. And um, like I said, put our head on the pillow at night knowing that we did all we could with the time that we were given um, to make as much change as possible, get as much movement as possible in that healthy direction, and then connect them with the next thing, the next lower level of care that they can, they can move on with. And um, I will say that one thing I'm so excited about is that um, I started uh, probably, let's see, last May or June, I had been with our old company that, that came part of this and you know, last year with Elements, uh, working in business development since uh, 2016, right through all my my health nightmare. And Uh um, last year, when we formed the new company, uh, decided that we wanted to take an approach and answer the call to needs that people have uh, after they leave residential treatment. Uh, Uh We we wanted to uh, make it possible to provide a resource uh, for people to stay connected both uh, in fellowship and, um, you know, to somewhat professionally uh, to a therapeutic, somewhat therapeutic and peer-driven environment with recovery resources. Um, no matter how long they are willing to stay connected, we want that resource to be there. And so we decided to set up and create this national alumni department. And I was asked to um, do that and spearhead that uh, spearhead that effort. And so uh, since then, we've been developing curriculum processes, um, adding uh, alumni advisors at uh, the cities of each of our uh, residential treatment facilities. 
and then slowly adding in one layer after the other of um, service and engagement. So right now I'll tell you, you know, what we're doing to uh, help uh, keep our keep our um, alumni, past clients engaged is uh, that we're doing a weekly uh, local alumni um, peer support meeting. We're doing uh, virtual meetings, which I'll talk more about in a second. Uh, those are happening every week um, at, from each location. Um, we're doing follow-up calls. Yeah, regularly with with each of uh, our alumni, and um, we're in the process of launching launching uh, an alumni app. Our program, by the way, the the alumni program is called Rooted, which I think is so um, perfect to talk about. Uh, mm, you know, life yeah. after life after uh, you know making a change. You know, we make that giant change, and it's so important that we do what's necessary uh, to maintain that maintain that change. And um, and so much of that is getting connected and staying connected. And so that's it um, right there. Yep. So our new app is going to be called Rooted. Um, it's uh, coming out next week. And so I am so excited. There couldn't be a better time for us to have pre-planned launching this app to help people stay connected because it's going to provide an avenue, a conduit, uh, you know, to um, just just further uh, connect our whole entire alumni community, um, not just, you know, for instance, we own the Ranch Tennessee, you know, not just Ranch Tennessee clients with Ranch Tennessee. We've got about 20, 22 to 25,000 alumni in our database right now across actually worldwide from all of our treatment locations. And um, it is going to be so cool when they're able wow. to connect with each other. And uh, so looking so forward to that. Back to the virtual, the virtual meetings, um, you know, we kind of have been uh, banging our heads together to figure out how can we change what we're doing to answer the call for uh, what's happening in our world right now. You know, we have got uh, a bunch of normal people that have never been through treatment out there. Uh, you know, also, most of them don't have a lot of coping skills that a lot of us learn in the rooms of 12 step and, and, um, you know, in treatment, uh, those people are all freaking out, losing their minds and everything. Um, and, you know, we look at, uh, you know, our recovering people that we're connected to going, you know, we've got to make sure that we take care of them and align their needs, align ourselves with their needs. We need to do something different. So the first thing that we saw that we could do was um, we're expanding our, what we're offering for virtual meetings and uh, more than doubling those. So we have between three and five virtual meetings we're offering every day of the week right now. And we've opened Same them time. up to the general public. So anybody in recovery from anything, um, no matter what recovery modality and uh, you know what they're in recovery from um, are, are welcome and invited to join us on these. And uh, we've been seeing a huge uh, increase in the people logging on and it's been so encouraging and inspired inspiring to see uh, yeah. that, you know, people are taking advantage of that and engaging. So uh, how would folks get to those virtual meetings, Patrick? I am going to, uh, there is a, there is a link we're putting together this morning and I will send okay. it to you guys uh, as soon as Great. I get it. Awesome. When we're off. We'll include it in show notes then. Fantastic. Awesome. Yep. Yeah. That's, that's incredible. Well, Patrick, this has really been uh, an enlightening and inspiring conversation. 
thank you for sharing so generously of yourself and your story uh, and uh, and your healing. It's I know that, uh, you know, I, I've been encouraged by uh, this conversation today, and I know that our listeners have as well. Yeah, absolutely. We've, you've uh, hit on some really timely points, Patrick, and I appreciate you really, uh, like Nate said, bringing that to us and to our listeners, and also uh, opportunities that they can uh, access that are that are not um, right now. Maybe maybe people are a little limited in what they're going to be able to mm-hmm. uh, access and participate in. So. These virtual type of things, uh, when you can't leave the house and you're feeling alone and alienated, those are going to be probably more effective than you guys ever thought they were yeah. uh, when you yeah. first conceived the ideas. So, yeah, I hope so. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, listeners, stay with us. We'll be right back on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Welcome back to the Positive Sobriety Podcast. And Nate, what a great time to talk about fear in a context that may not be what we are experiencing culturally and as a society today, but how well that applies to what we're facing. Uh, Patrick's story to me was so inspiring about just putting into perspective what we can and cannot control. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that, what a great conversation. Patrick did everything that we want a good guest to do. Mm. He was personal yeah. and he was practical. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, uh, I'm certain that uh, our listeners are, we got a lot of what he gave us was portable. We're going to, we're going to carry it with us through the west, rest of the day and into the week. And it's, uh, yeah, it's going to help all of us cope. And I'm looking forward to being able to post things for people about the virtual meetings, because I have this sneaking feeling that we're going to, those are going to get more and more important instead of less and less. Yeah, absolutely. And we're, by the way, in the Samson Society, we're seeing definitely an uptick in virtual meetings. And a lot of our local meetings that uh, are banned from meeting now, churches are closed and uh, some are ordered to shelter in place. Uh, even our local Samson Society meetings or groups are moving their meetings online. It's a wonderful thing to see. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, terrific. Yeah. Well, we'll use this same technology next week when we have yet another uh, great guest coming. Until then, I'm Nate. I'm David. And we are your pals on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. The Positive Sobriety Podcast is recorded at Crossroads for the Nations in Brentwood, Tennessee. Live producer Rex Schnelli, music by Rex Schnelli, theme music by Matt Ulrich, uh, hair and makeup by Lyle Lovett, uh, wardrobe by <laughs> Kathy Gifford. 